Can you ever officially separate the world of sports from the real world? We'll discuss this week on Iceman and Coach. What's up, everyone? Welcome back to another episode of Iceman and Coach. It is actually the return because last week we did not have an episode. A little bit of a peek behind the curtain. Obviously, Coach and I have real lives. We have kids. We have families. And sometimes there are things that happen in which we just cannot bring content to you. Last week was a perfect storm of Coach being unable to record with me last week. And I honestly got sick after my kid got sick. So unfortunately, it was just a little bit of a week off from Iceman and Coach. But this week, you at least get me, Matty Ice, the Iceman. The coach is, of course, taking care of his family. And that is always going to come first, no matter what hard stop. If you are listening to this show, you know that we are both family men and you know that we have priorities in our life. And while this podcast is a very, very fun thing and something that I enjoy and he enjoys immensely, there are just going to be times in which we have to put those other priorities first. And that leads me to the topic of the week, which has to do with discomfort in sports and really the real world spilling into the sports world. I think for so long, so many of us thought that we could get away and escape the real world within the world of sports, that sports was our escape and it was a place in which it was really anti-political and really devoid of many of the things that trouble us in life. If we're having a bad day, if we had a fight with our spouse, something like that, we could go to the game, flip on the game and feel like we are lost in this alternate reality and a reality in which many of us have not participated and will not participate but it still was an escape regardless. And unfortunately, the real world creeps into that more and more as we start to know more and more and have more of a transparency about the real world. The advent of social media has made it so the world is just a place we cannot escape. The things that happen across our borders and even overseas are going to come to our front doorstep once we pick up our phone. The news cycle is constantly churning, It is inescapable. Unless you go out of your way to avoid the news, there is no way to avoid many of the biggest stories that hit our screens and hit our faces, essentially. And so I'm using that as a segue to some of the topics that I'm going to discuss today. Normally, when Coach and I record, it's all about fun. We like to have a great time. And while Coach was obviously more than willing to discuss things like this, I think me taking the opportunity to opine and pontificate about them is a little bit more appropriate. And really the content that Coach and I are striving to have is more of an entertainment and that escape. But when it's just me, it's gonna be the things that are on my mind and the things that are at the forefront of the sporting news. And unfortunately, the last couple of weeks have shown that there is a lot to really dig into. I wanna start with the World Cup. Now the World Cup and soccer is a sport that Coach and I have not covered. I've listened to him on other shows like the Pub Time Podcast, which you should also support in addition to this show. And I know that he is not the biggest soccer fan in the world. Soccer is the world sport. It is easily the most popular sport internationally. And even here in the United States, we follow many of the international sports teams and leagues, such as Manchester United, Man City, La Liga, you name it. There's a bunch of leagues out there and I know a lot of people, and it could be the gambling aspect of it, but I do know that a lot of people have very strong affiliations with Premier League clubs and other professional clubs across the globe. Every four years, similar to the Olympics, we get the World Cup. And the World Cup is hosted, similar to the Olympics again, in a different locale every single time. 
The way in which we get to those host nations is something of needed scrutiny. I think when these choices were made, the last World Cup in 2018 was in Russia. This one is in Qatar or Qatar, however it is that you want to say it. I believe Qatar is the official way to say it. So I'm going to try and say it as appropriately as I can. When that bid went out and that selection was made, immediately red flags were thrown up. A lot of people thought that something was not on the up and up. And I guess we at the time started to realize that FIFA, an international organization that at the end of the day is supposed to be about international play and good faith, is really about money. And FIFA was obviously in the pockets of the Qatari government in order to basically give them this World Cup. Even at the time, I believe it was in 2010, we knew logistically there were going to be issues and the heat was the thing that everybody talked about. Traditionally, the World Cup is held in July, and with the Qatari weather being over 110 degrees, there's no way that any player or any team was going to be able to sustain high peak performance during that time without an element of danger. Now, obviously, in sports, there is always an element of danger, but my point being here is that that is the kind of danger that is not just implied every time you play. Those are the kinds of conditions that are avoidable and should be avoidable by all franchises if they can help it. And so the World Cup was moved to November, which is where we find ourselves today, or December today, but starting in November, and that's where we find ourselves today. The lead up to this World Cup has been nothing short of skeptical. There has been a ton of skepticism, a ton of news coverage on many of the discomforting factors that have gone into this World Cup. And I'm speaking really to the five to 8,000 contracted workers who passed away building the stadiums that are now being played in. Many times with these large international sporting events, the Olympics and the World Cup, if a country gets them, they generally have to go into massive debt in order to create the infrastructure needed to house an, an event like this. And the World Cup is no different. They house it throughout the entirety of the country, which means you need multiple 60 to 80,000 persons seating stadiums in order to do this. For the Olympics, there's so many more venues that you have to create. And what generally happens is this takes a toll on the economy of this country. Now, the Qatari government or the government of Qatar is obviously a very, very rich government, similar to the Arab Emirates and things like that. They have what a lot of people would say is FU money. And so perhaps they had the money to fund this and it's not going to affect their economy. But one thing it did affect was their class system. We also know that some of the countries that are not the United States do not share the same ideals as the United States. And a lot of it comes down to things like freedom, due process, and other types of rights that we have become accustomed to in this country that maybe we've even taken for granted. The Qatari government is not about LGBTQ plus rights or anything of the like. It is a government that is based in their faith, and that faith is something that is incongruous with what we believe in terms of a moral standard here in this country. Now, I know that not everybody believes in homosexuality and transgender relations and all that kind of stuff, but I think we have come to a place in this country where we should at least be objectively accepting those things, even if it's not something that we personally want in our lives or personally can understand, a live and let live kind of mentality. The Qatari government is not in the business of a live and let live type of mentality. They are our way or the highway. And even leading up to this, the press that was going in there, the people that had credentials in order to cover this World Cup were showing us and giving us glimpses here and there of the Qatari government's unwillingness to put on a good face for this World Cup. They are going to be themselves. They are going to impress their beliefs and their value system on the rest of the world coming to their country. And I have to say, I can't really blame them for that. It really comes down to it's their government, their borders, and no matter what you think of it, no matter what you believe in, 
they have every right to exercise and police their borders the way that they see fit. If we as Americans travel to that country, we need to make sure and make damn sure that we are adhering to their laws and being as careful as possible to not break a law that we don't even know or take for granted of that we don't break here. This has been something that has been hard to separate from the action because the lead up to this is obviously intertwined with the play on the field. And while the play on the field has been exciting and there have been good stories, for many people, it's been difficult to separate those two things. And I think that that's fair. And I think it's okay to bring it up. But I also wanna say that I think that it's fair for people to enjoy the sport and enjoy the event while also recognizing that these things are happening. In my mind, it's not binary enough to say that you either have to boycott it or you, if you watch it, you are somehow in favor of these people who have died to create these stadiums. I don't think it's quite that binary. Just the same as another topic that we're gonna get into after this isn't as binary. There are many ways in which to look at it. So I think from a moral perspective, if you are somebody who's been enjoying these sports and you feel a little bit of discomfort because of all the things that have gone into it, it's okay. There are going to be uncomfortable moments in sports. There always will be. There are uncomfortable truths in everything that we do, and sports is no different. On top of that, one of the preeminent, if not the preeminent soccer reporters in this country, Grant Wall, somebody who had been covering soccer for a very, very long time, on the forefront in real crisp journalism, going after the truth and not necessarily opinion, being kind to a lot of people and giving spotlight to a sport that maybe isn't as accepted here in this country, but is obviously accepted widely internationally. There was an incident with him on Twitter in which he was trying to support his brother, who is gay, by wearing an LGBTQ plus shirt to one of the games that he was not covering as a journalist. He was turned away by security. He was detained, slightly detained. This is not like detained in jail but told that he could not wear this shirt and he had to change it before coming in. We in this country generally don't see that kind of thing because most of the time we're allowed to wear whatever we want. The rules are a lot looser in terms of the content that we can have on our clothing and our apparel. If we wear a shirt that's LGBTQ plus friendly, most of the time we can wear that in just about every single establishment. Now there are rules and certain lines that we draw in the sand, of course, but I'm talking for the most part, we don't have to worry about, is somebody going to arrest me for a shirt that I'm wearing? So trying to wear that shirt in and sort of impress his beliefs and his morals on this government probably was a little bit risky, if you ask me, and I'm not putting any blame on him for any of the things that have happened, but I'm saying it was risky. He also tweeted about it, which obviously I talked about a lot of reporters and journalists going over there and adding some type of a spotlight to what's going on in Qatar or Qatar. And I think that by doing so again, there is an added level of risk. It was a risk that maybe wasn't necessary to take, but in his mind, it had, some, it had an emotional connection that he needed to put out there and make sure that he was showing the world what was happening in this country for a lot of people who maybe disassociate themselves from the uncomfortable truths of the world. Unfortunately, I'm not even reporting this because it has been in the news for almost a week now, but Grant Wall passed away very suddenly while at the Argentina-Netherlands game, and it was in a way that a lot of people went right to conspiracy theory. I obviously did not know Grant Wall at all. I was familiar with his work as a journalist, familiar with his work within the sport of soccer, but that's about where that line is drawn. I don't know him, I don't know his family. I know that his wife is one of the preeminent COVID scholars right now in this country or was at the front lines trying to save this country in a lot of ways. And again, this is not about the pandemic. It's not about your opinion about the pandemic. It's just about what his wife was doing during the COVID pandemic. And I know that a lot of people wanna to jump to conspiracy. 
And maybe there is a conspiracy. Maybe the Qatari government was behind this. And because of the scrutiny that he put on them in a very public way on social media, they decided to retaliate. We are not going to know that. There are a lot of things happening right now just to extradite his body back to the state so that his family can get some answers. In the end, it's about the answers for them. But I just want to say this out front. Life is very, very fleeting. And in this particular case, it happens to be something that is intertwined with a lot of discomfort around an event that a lot of people were looking forward to here in this country and internationally. And while the U.S. men's team was something that we could get behind, and while there are great stories like Morocco in this tournament, Argentina possibly getting Messi that last career-defining moment, in the end, Grant Wall's death and the death of the 8,000 or so people who were working on these stadiums, those are real. They're real to the people that were involved, the people that are surviving. And for Grant Wall, somebody who is a very, very healthy person, to all of a sudden drop dead, if you're somebody looking for answers, if you're a family member, I can certainly understand why you would go that route because this government has been very, very uncomfortable for a lot of people and very, very publicly outward about what they are. And they have earned that level of skepticism. I think that that is fair. I don't know. We may not ever know. All that I do know is that this World Cup has provided a lot of discomfort and anxiety for people. And again, while the while the play on the field has been very entertaining from a sports perspective, it's very difficult to separate those two things. And honestly, it just becomes more and more impossible to do that at every turn. Another thing that happened in the news is we have a resolution to the Brittany Griner situation. Now, this is a very polarizing issue. It's something that people feel very passionately about. And it's another one of those instances where we cannot separate this particular instance from the politics and the political climate of this country. Say what you will about whatever side of the fence you sit on or you oppose. Right now, we are the most divided we have ever been in many, many ways. And maybe just in a political sense, this is the most divided we've ever been. I've certainly seen examples of ways in which we are coming more together in terms of diversity. But when it comes to politics, we very much are trying to employ an us versus them mentality. You're either with me or you're against me. And when Russia invaded Ukraine, it's at the height of all of this. And what happened back then and back in February is Brittany Griner, who was in Russia playing for one of their professional teams, who obviously a lot of the WNBA players don't get paid nearly the salary that NBA players do. And many of them seek out alternative employment in other countries. It's like playing winter ball for baseball. Brittany Griner has gone over there at least one season, if not two. And what happened this time is she was detained for having essentially a vaping pen for CBD or pot or whatever. And that is something that probably had been accepted many times as she's come and gone through the country for her time playing basketball there. But now at the height of political warfare, Russia decided to use her not only to make an example, but as political leverage. And she had been detained in Russia since February, nine months, and was finally released. Building up to this, we knew that President Biden had a lot of pressure to get her out. He also had a lot of pressure to try and get other people out. And I'm specifically speaking about Paul Whelan here. Paul Whelan is not the best guy. We know that there's a lot of uncomfortable truths about him, but he has been over there for four years and feels as if he has been illegally detained. Very similarly to the way that Brittany Griner was, was seemingly illegally detained. You can probably nitpick on that language because if it's something that was a law, even if they let it go many times, technically if she broke a law, she was not illegally detained. 
unfairly detained for that amount of time, I think is a different argument. And that's why I don't believe this situation and other situations are quite as binary. Brittany Griner doesn't deserve to have either A or B happen to her. There's a lot of things that are happening within the margins that I think need to be recognized. Brittany Griner was traded for who essentially was the Lord of War, an arms dealer that had been over here. I believe it's Victor Boot was his name. Many people, when this news came out, first of all, if you're a liberal, you're somebody who is very, very happy about this, that she's coming home. Regardless of who we had to trade for her, you're very, very happy about this. If you're a conservative, we it was a bad trade. To use the language bad trade to me feels very, very wrong because it's not a trade. When we talk about trades, we talk about that in the context of sports. You trade one player for another player. You trade one player for some draft picks and a player to be named later. Cash considerations, all that stuff. In the end, all of that is affecting the people involved, whether it's a draft pick who's going to have his future decided by wherever he gets drafted, or whether it's a player that's going to go from, say, Denver to San Francisco and have his entire life thrown into upheaval. It's life-altering. But a trade is a trade in sports, and it comes down to play on the field. Whether you're putting a ball through a hoop or throwing a football into an end zone, you play a sport for a living. You have a little bit of influence. Obviously, a lot of people look to you for excitement and entertainment and happiness, but in the end, your sphere of influence is relatively small compared to these geopolitical issues that take place throughout the entire world. And so to say that Brittany Griner traded for an arms dealer was a bad trade shows a lot of ignorance, in my opinion, on a lot of people's parts, because it's not quite, again, as binary as that. So much of it has to do with the leverage that you have. It happens in sports. A team desperate to win a World Series who doesn't have any leverage is going to get fleeced at the trade deadline in baseball trying to find that one or two pieces that they need in order to get them to the next level. They're going to overpay for that asset. And in this particular case, knowing the political climate that is here, and as I said earlier, it's very, very divided. Russia knew what they were doing. Vladimir Putin knew what he was doing. He knew that he had an asset that could be easily leveraged for something that he needed. The U.S. was going to be in the business of overpaying to get her back. Because honestly, the consequence of not getting her back was more catastrophic to the Biden administration than, than anything else. Most people wanted a twofer. They wanted both Paul Whelan and Brittany Griner for this arms dealer. But Russia was never going to give that up. And why would they? A lot of people felt as if Russia should have played a fairer game. Again, it's a it's showing a little bit of ignorance to how these things work. When it comes to geopolitical issues, it's all about leverage. It's all about optics. And Joe Biden, for everything that I have criticized him about, for him to come home empty-handed would have been catastrophic. So in his mind and in this administration's mind, it was better to get her home than nothing at all. And for a lot of people saying that that's not fair, and there's many things you can criticize Brittany Griner for. You can criticize her for the way that she trashed this country, for the way that she disrespected a lot of this country. And I get all of that. I get how people are emotionally attached to this country in a way that has become almost toxic. But if you're somebody in the military, seeing somebody kneeling in front of a flag is going to elicit an emotional response from you. And for many people, they're not going to take the time to find out what the cause is that this is representing and what the nuances are of it. It's okay. People aren't going to do that. We just have to accept that at this point. Not everybody's going to take the time to think, what are the ins and outs of this situation? In the end, though, Brittany Griner is home. And I think objectively, anybody who has a family should be at least happy about that part. 
Can we be disappointed about the many other aspects of this? 100%. I've been an advocate for this is a lesson that this country should learn in looking within our own borders to figure out how we can make it so that less people are incarcerated unfairly and for extremely lengthy terms for just minor pot use or minor pot possession, things like that. It should be a catalyst for that kind of change to look at our pot laws and think, why are we so stringent on something that really has no it really has no impact on this country. Alcohol is legal. More people die of alcoholism and drunk driving than they do anything related to pot. And this whole business of it's a gateway drug, so is alcohol. Alcohol is a drug. Prescription drugs are a gateway drug. How many people are hooked on opioids in this country? Those are things that are given out medically for a medical reason that people get hooked on. It doesn't just have to be something that's illegal. And so I think the Brittany Griner situation, while I'm happy for her family, I do hope that many people take the time to understand the nuances of this. There's no way we were going to get everything that we wanted because the US just did not have the leverage. And the reason we didn't have the leverage is because of the political climate in this country. That everybody, whether you're listening now or listening later, or somebody who feels as if maybe they're a fence sitter, in some way, we have all contributed to this. And it's going to continue that way until we, the people of the United States, figure out a way in which we can get back to some centrist belief. The idea that you don't have to be with me or against me, that we can agree to disagree. But the political climate 100% made this situation the way that it was. And the Biden administration did what they could to figure out a way to get her home. One more topic that's on a little bit of a sad note. As I was writing out the notes to this show, there was a developing story about Mike Leach. Now, if you've listened to this show, you know that Coach and I are huge fans of Mike Leach. He's one of the characters of college football. And honestly, no matter whether he wins a national title or not, he's an interesting guy and a guy that I know I would have loved for my son to play football for if he wanted to play football. The developing story last night was that Mike Leach was hospitalized a couple of days ago for a massive cardiac event. As somebody who's had a cardiac event and had a heart attack, I know what that means. I know the severity of that situation. And thankfully, in my case, it did not lead to a hospitalization. And over the course of the day yesterday, there was a lot of things happening, many reports coming out about his care, where he was, the condition that he was in. But ultimately, we really didn't have any answers. I get into it with somebody on Twitter because I posted that he was reportedly in hospice care and that it was a blow to his family into college football and that we hope that his family and he is at peace. I said reportedly I did not mean to somehow announce that he had passed away or that he was close. And I'm also not somebody who has any type of verification whatsoever on Twitter. And the big thing that happened yesterday was that a lot of people were getting flagged because they weren't verifying and vetting their sources. The source that I had was something that was very deep inside the Mississippi State program. But again, it was a screenshot of something that I had seen that a lot of people were sharing. And it seemed as if, in my mind, the situation was not in a good place regardless. That Mike Leach was not in good health, and it didn't seem as if there was a pathway to him to fully recover. That at least seemed like it was mutually understood. This person did not believe that I had the credentials to post something like that, but I was really just giving my opinion that it was sad, and I hoped he was at peace. What we found out overnight is that Mike Leach passed away at the age of 61 and one of the premier characters in college football, a sport that has been made just about antiseptic of any type of character and any type of personality is no longer with us. It's a sad day. Much like Grant Wall, I did not know Mike Leach personally, but obviously the public persona that I saw of him, it seemed very genuine. It seemed as if he was a fun guy to be around and honestly a fun guy to play with. 
A story that I heard once, and I think it was Coach who told me this story, was about Gardner Minshew. Gardner Minshew was being recruited by a lot of schools. He's obviously very talented, especially for the college level. And one of the schools he was being recruited by was Alabama. Mike Leach, when he was at Washington State, was also recruiting him and pitched him this way. And I thought that this was very brilliant. He said, sure, you can go to Alabama and maybe see the field, or you can come to Washington State and lead the league in passing. He went to Washington State and led the league in passing. He led college football in passing. He also was a very similar personality to Mike Leach. Very unpredictable, but unpredictable in that good way. You just never know what he's going to say. And he has jorts, all that stuff. Mike Leach is going to leave a very gaping hole in the sport because it is a sport, as I said earlier, that is really antiseptic now. It feels like a professional product where the faces of college football are just that. They're businessmen. Nick Saban is a businessman. Ryan Day, at the end of the day, no pun intended, is a businessman. Urban Meyer was a businessman. They're all about making money, winning national championships, because that brings more money to the program, which means more money in their pocket. And while Mike Leach obviously made a hefty salary being coaches in three different places and having pretty decent success at all of those places, you got the sense that he was a genuine guy and that if you met him and he was in your living room recruiting your son, that you would just find him so genuine and appealing and funny. He seemed like that guy. So many of the questions that reporters would ask him would be funny. They knew they were going to get a response out of him. And to me, that is the sign of a genuinely cool person. When people go out of their way to try and get something out of you that they know is going to be entertaining and genuine and authentic. Being genuine and authentic isn't a guarantee in this world. I can guarantee you that when you go meet Nick Saban, you're not getting the genuine, authentic Nick Saban. I would actually venture a guess that very, very few people get that person. He is always on lock. He is always in a business mindset. That's the way he's going to be. Mike Leach was never that person. And so while maybe he wasn't as successful as a Nick Saban, maybe he'd never win a national championship. I think the fact that he added to the fabric of college football the last 20 years, it was somebody that was always out in the forefront making people laugh and always getting covered for it. He was himself 100% of the time. And there was something to be said about that. We're not always that way with ourselves even. And so for him to be that way with everybody was very, very cool. So I will say rest in peace to Mike Leach. I hope that his family is at peace. I hope that he did not suffer. I hope that he was comfortable. I know that my mom was comfortable at the end of her life. And so there was some comfort that I could take and others could take in that regard. I don't know Mike Leach or his family. All I can do is send positive vibes that way because when somebody is gone from your life, it's a gaping hole that will never be filled. And honestly, it's gonna take a lot of time for that to be filled. So rest in peace to Mike Leach. I do wanna talk a little bit of sports and I wanna talk a little bit of sports strategy before we get you out of here this week. And I wanna talk about MLB free agency because that has been sort of the hot button issue. Yes, there's a lot of things happening with the college football playoff the NFL, but I want to wait for coach to come back before we discuss a lot of that stuff, because to me, that's kind of our bread and butter. So baseball is a sport we've touched on briefly, but I think that the ins and outs of free agency and the strategy of free agency is something worth mentioning on this show and sort of talking about. This is about the time of year with the winter meetings where a lot of the high end free agents are going to be off the market. Every single offseason, once the World Series is over, we're looking at the list of people that are going to be free agents and we're trying to figure out where they're going to go. There's a lot of ins and outs that take place between the players and their franchises with the media, things that are leaked to the media, all the rumors that swirl around. It's kind of a circus. Maybe it's not the circus to the point of NFL free agency or even maybe NBA free agency. But to me, the baseball free agency is so interesting because the economics are so different. All the other major sports in this country have a salary cap. 
Some of them even have a salary floor. And so at the end of the day, the teams have to sign players that sort of align with everything that is happening with them financially. On the accounting books, they have to make sure that they are under a certain level. And obviously that creates some very, very interesting accounting trying to make it all work. Deferred money, deferred years, whatever. In baseball, all the contracts are guaranteed. And there is no firm salary cap in the way that we understand it. And I mean, we the fans understand a salary cap. Most of the time we think of a hard number. In baseball, they have a luxury tax. It's very colloquially called the Steve Cohen tax. And basically when you're over a certain threshold, you are paying a tax. And that tax is divvied out to the competitive balance of the rest of the league. So the Miami Marlins would get a cut of whatever the luxury tax is, let's say that the Los Angeles Dodgers are paying. That's kind of how revenue sharing works in baseball because there is no ad revenue sharing. So if one team has a $50 million TV deal and the Yankees have a $400 million TV deal, the $50 million team doesn't see a dime of whatever the Yankees have. That's where the paradigm has gotten to today, where we see all of these teams way out in front and all signing these guys because they have the financial flexibility to do so. Because with all the TV deals and sponsorships and everything, they can afford to have a high payroll, pay this luxury tax and still make a profit in the end. I think that's the part of sports in general, but I think when you talk about baseball free agency, specifically in this case, a lot of fans, I think, are so embedded in their emotions about a team that they forget that at the end of the day, the people that are running these teams are executives. They're businessmen and women, and they're about their bottom line first and foremost. And in our society that is capitalistic, that's what their focus should be. It should be on whether they're making money. You don't throw billions of dollars at a franchise and buying a franchise, one of 30-something franchises, to just sit there and have it as a hobby. You're hoping for it to be an investment and have a return on that investment. And you have to keep it long enough to have a return on the investment. The Red Sox are in an advantageous position because they're one of the oldest franchises in the league and they have had ridiculous success since the turn of the century, having won four World Series. Obviously, that means a lot of eyes on the product. It means a lot of people want to go to Boston in terms of free agency, and that makes it so it is easier for the Red Sox to have a competitive team year after year after year. Not to mention they have one of the biggest TV deals in the league. I think it's a top five deal with the New England Sports Network. So they're in an advantageous position. Boston fans are very, very upset because their one player or their biggest named player that's on the free agent market, Xander Bogertz, who'd been with the team since he was drafted, was brought up. He was homegrown talent, as they like to call it. At age 30, he finally hits the free agent market, and he has been excellent for the Red Sox, well above average in terms of his play. And during this offseason, the Red Sox tried to get him to sign an extension. But by all accounts, and we don't know where these accounts are coming from, probably from Scott Boris, who is his agent, were that the Red Sox insulted him without giving him a really good offer. He eventually signed with the San Diego Padres for 11 years, $280 million. So I want you to think about that for a second. A 30-year-old player or 29-year-old player signing an 11-year contract. He will be in his 40s when he hits the end of that contract. And guess what? Whether he's playing or whether he stinks, he will see every cent of that contract throughout. And so from the Red Sox perspective, I was getting into it a little bit, not even getting into it, but sort of debating and giving my opinion on this signing that what would have been a discount? Many Red Sox fans were saying he was willing to take a hometown discount. With Scott Boris as his agent, and with the amount of money and years that he took, what would constitute a hometown discount? What would it be? And if that's nine years at 250 million or whatever, the math still doesn't work out that that's a good idea. Even the New York Mets are doing the same thing. The New York Mets, they have the highest payroll right now for next year. 
signing guys to eight-year contracts. And those are very, very dangerous because you're never going to see the full value of that contract. Aaron Judge is probably somewhat of an outlier, but nine years and $360 million, by the time he reaches the end of that contract, will he be producing the way that he does now? Probably not. But is it worth it to a team like the Yankees who can kind of afford to do that because they have the financial flexibility to do it? I think when it comes down to it, though, the amount of time that a guy is going to be signed is very, very crucial. So in my mind, as much as I would like to see a guy like Bogertz retire as a Red Sox, that's really an emotional response for me. The business sense is not really favoring that kind of an attitude. The business sense is what are we going to look like in eight years or seven years when this contract is on the books? Think about this for a second. The Mets this year, their fifth highest paid player is going to be Robinson Cano. Can you name the last time he played a game for the Mets? I guarantee you he's not going to play for the Mets next year. He hasn't been playing, still getting paid. $20 million he's going to get paid next year. Fifth highest Met. He's not even going to be on the roster. Think about that. Teams have to worry about this. Not every franchise has a Steve Cohen who's just willing to pay exorbitant amounts of money, not just for his players, but he's looking at spending $75 million in the luxury tax this year. That's going to be higher than like 10 teams total payroll. Free agency is about shoring up places in which you feel you have deficiency. A lot of times the fan bases want there to be some big splash, but many, many, many times the littlest splashes are the things that actually put teams over the top. And think about the teams that have won the World Series over the last five years. The Dodgers are probably one of the only teams who have actually gone out of their way to spend a ton of money, but it doesn't guarantee that they're going to win. The Dodgers have gotten there a lot and they've only won once. The Astros have been there, what, six times and won twice? it's difficult to win the World Series. It's supposed to be. Many of the teams that have won outside of the 2018 Red Sox didn't have the highest payroll. And the thing is, the disparity between the teams that have the highest payroll and the teams that are at the bottom is becoming wider and wider, where in years past, even earlier this century, those teams were still spending close to the same amount of money. The disparity has grown larger. And so if you're a fan of one of these teams, you wanna make sure that your team is using their money smartly that they're not just thinking about what are we going to do next year? What are we going to do in seven years? Because at the end of the day, not only are they trying to field a winning product, at least most teams are. Many of the owners of teams that know that they're going to be bad are really only worried about their bottom line. If they can also win, cool. But if not, it's not going to lose sleep for them. They're not going to lose sleep. Their fan base might be pissed, but they're not going to lose sleep over it. And at the end of the day, the Red Sox will be in on some free agent. Maybe not this year. Maybe this year is a wash, but next year. And a lot of the fans up there need to remember that prior to 2004, we didn't have a championship to go back on, but now we have four. So it's really amazing to me that fans just are World Series or bust. This is a place in which fans are binary. We talked about all these things, all these uncomfortable things earlier not being binary. Fans' loyalty to the team is very binary. World Series or nothing. Nothing in between is good. To me, it, it is somewhere in between. World Series are nice, but I don't want to be the team that wins a World Series and then immediately tanks and all of a sudden they're not going to be good for a long time. Look at the Washington Nationals. The Washington Nationals basically had to sell out to win their World Series. And for many fans, it probably was worth it. But we have no clue when they're going to be good again. They were the worst team in the league this year. I think it wasn't even close. And there's really no hope on the horizon. And they're going to be bad for a very, very long time. Will they get to Houston Astros territory where they draft well because they've lost so long and for so many years that they get good draft picks? You have to also make good on those draft picks as well. Will they be that? I don't know. 
Not every team can do that. The Astros, to me, are an outlier. They're like the Patriots. Eventually, that well is going to dry up and they're going to be right back to square one because Houston is a large market. I don't think it has the staying power as a New York or an LA. And then you've got the San Diego Padres who are doing what the Mets are trying to do and they're trying to just sign as many players as possible. They are all in on winning the World Series. But I can tell you something, I'm not sure they have the right pieces to do it. It's one thing to sign a free agent, but if you don't have the right guys on the team, the chemistry is going to suffer. And it's just, it's a, it's a fact. It's a statement of fact. You can have the highest paid guys in the world. You can have the best, most shiny players on the world, but it doesn't matter in the end if they're not complementary pieces to each other. And that's why I believe in free agency, it's very important to look at places where you truly need some depth and really make that happen. The day that Xander Bogertz was announced to sign to the Padres, the Red Sox signed Kenley Jansen, and they spent the most money to get a Japanese player over here. He's going to be an everyday player. He's probably going to be pretty good. They had a pretty good day. It wasn't good enough because the one player that fans had an emotional attachment to didn't stay in a Red Sox uniform. But I can guarantee you in three or four years, we'll probably feel good about that because Bogertz's play is going to go down. It is an unequivocal fact that just about every player outside of maybe one or two declines after the age of 35. And this is the stat that I wanna give you that I think is really important to showing that this is true. There have been six players all time who have had a single season war of six or more after the age of 35, six. And Barry Bonds is one of them. And he doesn't really count because all of those seasons were steroids. So it didn't necessarily mean that he was going to be that good. So that really is five. And all of them are Hall of Famers basically. I mean, it is a lot to ask a player to play that well after age 35. But a lot of these GMs and a lot of these agents are convinced that it's going to happen. Not to my guy, doesn't mean anything. Age is going to catch up to everybody, it is. It's catching up to Tom Brady right now. And he's what, 45? And that's an outlier. So a tale of caution for a lot of you fans out there who are upset that your team didn't get the guy that you wanted. Look at it in the long game. Think about what it means for the future of the franchise. Maybe it means that you'll win a World Series quicker because you're able to get a few other guys who maybe shore up some spots that you needed. I mean, the 2013 Red Sox didn't have a real superstar on the team. They weren't a team that everybody looked at preseason and thought, yep, totally going to win the World Series. Ton of journeymen guys, a ton of complimentary pieces that all work together and overachieved, basically. Sometimes that's all it takes. I want to thank you for tuning in this week. I'm sorry that the coach was not here. I hope that you enjoyed this and I'd love to know what you think of all of this. If you want to reach the show at Iceman and Coach is the handle on Twitter. Please support the Pub Time Podcast. I know that it means a lot to Brad and it will mean a lot to them. So please do that. The Matty Ice Media Network, please support it. Go to www.mattyicemedia.com to find all the other podcasts that we have, which includes political football, which is right now during the season, a weekly live stream. If you have any comments or questions for the show, mattyicemedia at gmail.com is the email to do that. And honestly, I hope that this finds you well and it finds you safe. And hopefully the coach and I will talk to you next week. This is Iceman and Coach. The opinions and viewpoints expressed on the Iceman and Coach Sports Show are those of Matt Freights, Brad Powell, and their guests, and not necessarily those of the Matty Ice Media Network. The Iceman and Coach Sports Show is exclusively owned by Matt Freights and Brad Powell and is brought to you by the Matty Ice Media Network.